station built just for you. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome. Memorial Day weekend. Used to be called Decoration Day weekend. By the way, um, just to reset, set it up. You can listen to us on Fox Business Network, FBN, every day during the week, Monday through Friday, 4 p.m., 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Please join us. And if you can't get there at 4 o'clock, for heaven's sakes, text your favorite nine-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show. And here on radio on Saturdays, you can live stream us on the Internet. LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. You can hear us all over the country, around the world, throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. And it is Memorial Day weekend. And I know it's uh, lovely to have a day off. I'm actually getting two days off. I took one yesterday, and of course, like everybody, we'll have Monday off, and we will celebrate with parades and barbecues and whatnot. But I want to put a little soberer tilt on this because it's actually a very, very important day, and it's a big part of our heritage, what makes the United States of America the greatest country in the world. Probably the greatest country, not probably, I take that out, the greatest country in the history of history. Freedom, democracy, strength, leadership, character, principle, Memorial Day is to honor all <clears throat> all military members who gave the ultimate sacrifice, who died while serving in U.S. forces. All military members who died while serving in U.S. forces. Very important. Very, very important. Now, we'll have Veterans Day later in the year. And that would be for all people who've served veterans of foreign wars. But uh, Decoration Day, Memorial Day, is for those who made the ultimate sacrifice and gave their lives while serving in the American military. It was originally begun right after the Civil War. There were a lot of local observances for soldiers, uh, who had kind of neglected grave sites. And uh, the first, I don't know, there's a debate about what was the first, but the first the first celebration could have been in uh, uh, Charlotte, South Carolina, May 1st, 1865, in Charlotte, South Carolina. Could be. Anyway, as the history goes, General John N. Logan, who was the commander-in-chief of the Grand Army of the Republic, the first recorded celebration, May 30th, 1868, General Logan. And uh, tradition, tradition, as you may know, is to put flowers, place flowers on veterans' graves. Flowers. And uh, you see that in the beautiful ceremony 
in the Arlington National Seminary. I think some of it will probably be played on television. Uh, General U.S. Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, one of my great heroes, President Grant, he presided over the first really large organized observance of Memorial Day. It was about 5,000 people, as the history goes, at the Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia on May 30th, 1873. May 30th, 1873 was the first really large-scale national kind of observance. And um, there was an act of Congress in 1971 that actually made it a national uh, holiday. And... uh, and kept it at the last, uh, the last weekend in the month of May. And again, it was originally, it originally came out of the Civil War. Some six hundred thousand people died during that horrible war. But it evolved, of course, into World War One and World War Two and Vietnam and Korea, and Iraq, and Afghanistan. And the way the thing is defined, it's really anybody who gave their their life serving in our armed forces to keep us free, to keep us free. And that's one of the things that I just want to emphasize briefly. I mean, we have a lot to talk about today, current events, politics, the economy, and so forth. But it is a day of reflection about the ultimate sacrifice that people gave their lives in our military service. It should be a day of gratitude, a prayer, remembering what it took, what it took to make America so special. Exceptionalism, American exceptionalism. Ronald Reagan was customarily wont to talk about American exceptionalism. I think we forget that today. At least some people forget that today. And unfortunately, we have some bad actors in our society that don't believe in it. Just outright do not believe in it. People on the far, far, far left would love to bring this country down by overturning our freedoms, our democracy, our free market capitalism, our families, our religion. Terrible what's going on on the far, far left today. Do not understand American exceptionalism. Do not understand democracy, democratic values, free speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, Stuff we read, I mean, I was reading or listening to on uh, Fox Radio, I was doing some errands yesterday and listening, uh, I think it was my pal John Roberts doing an interview with somebody, how debating contests, high school debating contests, as I recall. You're not allowed to debate freedom. You're not allowed to debate democracy. You're not about to, uh, allowed to debate capitalism. 
I mean, crazy stuff. Free markets, crazy, crazy stuff. And that kind of attitude, of course, is the exact opposite of what we celebrate Monday officially, but this whole weekend, really the beginning of summer. What is it that makes America so great? It is our freedom. And it is the incredible courage and bravery of millions of Americans who served in our armed forces to fight in defense of that freedom and its values and its influence at home and abroad. And so many of them tragically made the ultimate sacrifice and gave their lives in support of those universal principles that make America so great. If you're going to a barbecue or going to a party or having a family gathering, it's a lovely weekend. might not be a bad idea. In fact, it would be a very good idea indeed to just think and reflect for a moment through all those wars, lives lost, what were we doing? We were fighting for our freedom. Fighting for our freedom. That has made this country so great. They were and are patriots. Patriots who made the ultimate sacrifice to defend America, the greatest country in the history of history. Let us not forget those patriots this weekend. Let us not forget those great men and women who made America free and great. And God bless them. May God watch over them wherever they may be. If we lose that, we'll lose everything. And that is why we must never lose those thoughts or those principles or on Memorial Day here in the United States of America, those memories and remembrances. What is it that we're doing at the National Cemetery or in your hometown or in your local parade? That is what we are celebrating, the greatness of America. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back after this message. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Telling stories, reporting the news, bringing common sense opinion. Red Apple Audio Networks, stories that shape our world. They're still negotiating. They were negotiating, I'm told, up till 3 a.m. this morning, and uh, they've come back at 8 a.m. There's a lot of issues. Uh, energy permitting hasn't been fixed yet. Work requirements haven't been fixed yet. The uh, spending cuts are being watered down a bit. I mean, I give Kevin McCarthy a lot of credit for fighting like hell. He wants next year's spending to be less than this year's spending. This year's spending, by the way, is quite substantial. You probably run about a $2 trillion deficit this year, no matter what Joe Biden says. That's what the numbers are saying, all of his blarney. Uh, notwithstanding. I don't know. They'll probably raise the debt ceiling by two years, not one. 
the deal won't be a 10-year deal. It'll be a two-year deal. But in a sense, it doesn't matter because you're going to get a budget resolution and you're going to get budget reconciliation uh, later this year. September 30th, the fiscal year ends. You're supposed to have all that wrapped up. That, in many ways, will supersede this deal. So it's some of it's symbolism. Uh, I think they're going to try to have the appropriators, uh, 12 appropriation bills will conform to the spending caps, whatever those caps wind up being. But we'll see how all that, it's not going to change anything. Janet Yellen has already moved the date, the so-called X date from June 1st to June 5th or June 6th. If they get decent corporate tax revenues, Come June 15th, they could probably run this through the end of July. They won't. They'll probably get a deal next week. Um, we'll see if it can pass. Uh, we're going to talk to Newt Gingrich at the half hour. We're going to talk about his latest book, which goes through some very instructive history of uh, his negotiations with Bill Clinton 25 years ago and uh, the beginning of work requirements and some other things that may relate to all this. But I just want to say that uh, I interviewed Kevin McCarthy on the TV show this past week, and, you know, he was very strong. I mean, basically, he's got, he's trying so hard uh, not only to curb spending, which would make the Federal Reserve job easier, wouldn't have to raise rates so much, but also some important supply-side reforms. I mean, the work requirements would get so many people back into the workforce able-bodied people, no kids up to age 55. I mean, that's something we should be doing. There could be four or five million people out there that could be going back to work as productive people, climbing the ladder of opportunity. I don't know how the work requirements are going to do. McCarthy's fighting for it. He knows this is a pro-growth bill. He knows it's an anti-inflation bill. That's what the House originally passed. He's run circles around uh, Joe Biden, but... Uh, Democrats, of course, don't want to cut spending, and uh, they're doing everything they can in a rear guard action to prevent the House Republicans uh, from running this thing and from overcoming this thing. So we'll have to see how that plays out. I want to raise one thing. It's a little bit technical, but the Supreme Court ruled 9 nothing against the EPA a couple days ago. That's a really big thing. It's about you know, little puddles on your land to prevent you from building a business or even building a house. But it's this old story how these unelected bureaucrats, uh, they're like regulatory socialists, central planners. They want to run the country. Uh, You see it much more with respect to climate change where they basically won't let you, you know, they won't let you have appliances, microwaves, shower heads, toilet bowls, gas-powered cars, diesel-powered trucks, uh, crazy stuff. But on the water, big water bill, uh, the Supreme Court overturned the EPA, and that's a huge plus, uh, rolling back the power. And you're going to see a lot of these things that the EPA is trying to do will be uh, rules that they're trying in the name of climate change, which won't have any impact on climate change whatsoever globally, because, of course, China won't play ball as well as other countries. But um, uh, a lot of these regulations will be overturned in the courts. And this is a very pro-business Supreme Court. Uh, It understands 
that there are three branches of government and the EPA, unelected bureaucrats, cannot run this country. If Congress wants to pass a law banning natural gas or banning gas-powered stoves or banning gasoline-powered cars, then let them pass a law. But the EPA just can't make some sort of executive regulation. And, in fact, the whole Biden attack on business, not just uh, fossil fuel energy, but business in general, the whole Biden attack on business, which has damaged the economy, and the economy is barely growing, the recession threat is rising, uh, inflation remains around 5%. I mean, that's better than 9%, but it's still two and a half times the Fed's 2% target. The point is, uh, what Biden has done to the economy that Trump gave him is in part done by uh, what Steve Forbes calls modern socialism through the regulatory state. And the Supreme Court, in this water law, knocked down another EPA decision. And I think that's a very, very good thing. Very good thing. And we will talk about the economy later in the show. Uh, The latest numbers coming out are very soft, very sloppy. As I said, inflation remains sticky. Corporate profits are falling. And um, the outlook here... Uh, it's not good. And then finally, you had um, presidential politics. Uh, Ron DeSantis throwing his hat into the ring officially. Governor DeSantis of Florida is a smart guy. He's a conservative. His uh, Twitter uh, feed went down. That whole thing was kind of a fiasco. Uh, he had a very good uh, interview on Fox News, uh, Trey Gowdy, where he went through his uh, Mr. DeSantis's um, policy principles, but he doesn't have an economic agenda yet. He doesn't have a clear pro-growth economic prosperity agenda. That's what he's lacking, and he's got to come up with one if he's going to truly challenge Trump in the primaries or defeat Biden in the general. He must have an economic agenda. So far, he's more woke, and the woke stuff is important, don't get me wrong, Uh, What these leftists are doing, so-called cultural Marxism, is utterly insane. But economic growth, economic prosperity, higher real wages for working folks, middle-class families, that's the key. Kitchen table stuff, pocketbook stuff. And uh, Governor DeSantis is a smart guy, but I would say Trump has a much stronger message and Trump had, um, you know, proven track record of achievement on that. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about all this uh, over the course of the show. But most important, happy Memorial Day. Please remember the men and women who gave their lives to support American freedom and democracy to make us the greatest nation in the history of history. I'm Kudlow. Newt Gingrich will be up next. Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We are um, having uh, APB Bolton for Newt Gingrich. Uh, we'll get him in just a moment or two, uh, hopefully. Remember, Newt Gingrich, interesting, former Speaker of the House, Fox News contributor. He's got a new book out uh, called The American Majority, March to the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution. Uh, that was back in the mid-90s, a very successful revolution, I might add. And I'm quite interested in how he handled Bill Clinton in those days, 
relative to how Kevin McCarthy is handling uh, Joe Biden. But, I, you know, one of the key points right now, I want to just go back, circle back on this debt ceiling business because what really matters here, and it's uh, partly a budget issue, but more broadly, it's going to be a presidential leadership issue. And that is simply that um, the GOP, which has the House, is very important, House has all money bills originate, originate in the House. The House uh, is where all tax bills must originate. Originate, they have the power of the purse. You know, this is about restoring real prosperity to America. Now, you know, steady listeners may have heard me say this in the past. But I will repeat it. The United States grew uh, in real terms, adjusted for inflation. Uh, between 1947, after World War II, and the year 2000, the U.S. grew at 3.5% per year for 50 years, 50-plus years, okay, 47 to 2000. Really quite remarkable. And by the way, we had recessions. I think we had 11 recessions and 12 recoveries or something like that. But... That was a remarkable period of American prosperity. And that prosperity benefited everybody across the board, created phenomenal opportunities. Uh, And, um, you know, whether we can replicate that or not remains to be seen. But in the last 20, almost 25 years, our growth rate has fallen back uh, to about 1.5%, 1 1.7%, 1.8% under 2%. And that's one of the reasons, for example, that we have these huge budget deficits. We are not producing enough economic growth from business and uh, consumers and employment uh, to cover our spending. And the welfare state has grown larger, and central planning has grown larger. And unfortunately, some of this has happened during Republican administrations, uh, and as well as Democratic administrations. We have not solved our prosperity problem. And basic building blocks of prosperity, uh, low tax rates, minimal regulations, uh, price stability, a sound, reliable dollar, Uh, restrained, limited government and government spending, which includes, you know, that's the real source of the debt problem is we just spend too much. This has got to be the number one issue in this campaign. And it's got to be the number one longer-term issue. You know, these you see these uh, very bad long-term debt estimates uh, from the Congressional Budget Office, where debt to GDP will rise. You know, right now it's running around 100%, uh, which is just w- itself way too high. Right, let me stop blathering and uh, bring in my friend Newt Gingrich. We found him. He's former Speaker of the House, as you know. Brilliant Fox News contributor. Hey, hey, Newt. Uh, Newt, glad we got hold of you. Thank you. <clears throat> Memorial Day. As always, best to Ambassador Callista. 
And um, I want to talk to you. You know, you've got this book, Mar- uh, March to the Majority, the real cool. story of the Republican Revolution. It's coming out, what, June 6th. Some of it's already oh. up uh, on Amazon, I think. But I want to just start by talking about, you know, what you did then and what are the lessons learned and how you dealt with Bill Clinton, how you got your contract with America, which included work requirements oh. and lower taxes and economic growth. And what, what can we take from that in terms of today's uh, battles over the debt ceiling and the fact that we have a very poor economy right now with uh, virtually no growth and uh, high inflation. What can we learn, Newt Gingrich? Hello. Hmm. Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? I got you. I can hear you. I hear you fine. Or I did. I, I can hear you, Newt. Our listeners can hear you. All right, we're going to try on another line. Um, again, I come back to this <laughs> my prosperity argument, which Newt will fill in the gaps in, in just a moment. We get him on a different line. But um, this has got to be, I mean, here's a statistic for you. Uh, I don't want to get into the weeds, but look, uh, Joe Biden's been president for two years plus, almost two and a half years now, and uh Middle-class wages, blue-collar, middle-income wages uh, adjusted for inflation have fallen, fallen 7%. Actually, I believe the number is 7.3% in his, in his term. All right, here's Newt back on a better line, hopefully. Good. Can you hear me okay? I can. I got you. Hey, good. Well, I'm delighted to chat with you, and, and uh, this will be a pretty exciting weekend, I think, uh, they're very likely going to end up with a uh, debt ceiling agreement that is going to be remarkably positive for exactly what you're concerned about. Uh, in lower taxes, less spending, and greater opportunity for people to create jobs and go to work. Newt, go back 25 years. You had to handle Bill Clinton. Uh, we captured the Congress, the contract with America, Ultimately, with lower taxes and less spending and work requirements and so forth, you wound up a tremendous prosperity that actually balanced the budget and created surpluses. Uh, what can we take from that experience a while back, and what can we take f- from that experience today in the debate? Because I think this debt ceiling debate is really just the beginning of the debate it could be a turning point for conservative economics, but we'll see. Anyway, what can you tell us from your book? Yeah. Well, I, well, I, I just wrote um, March to the Majority, which takes the whole period of this, the 16 years we worked to create a majority, the first majority in 40 years, and then the four years we negotiated with Clinton. And, and March to the Majority is really kind of a cookbook of how you do it. And I have to say, I think with Speaker McCarthy so far, is, is doing a very good job of following that game plan, uh, which starts with the American people. I mean, uh, Lincoln once said, with popular sentiment, anything is possible. Without popular sentiment, nothing is possible. Uh, and Reagan, in his farewell address, said all of his greatest victories were won by the American people, not by him, uh, because they told Congress what they wanted. So you start, you start with the notion 
that you have to have big goals, uh, getting back to a work requirement, for example, which we did with welfare reform, uh, controlling spending, having the kind of tax cuts, and equally important, having the kind of regulatory changes that make it easier for people to create jobs and be entrepreneurs and start companies. All of these things are, are a practical playbook, which, frankly, when you were in the Reagan White House, uh, you were helping develop and implement it. goes goes back to the 70s, and, and people like um, Art Laffer, Jack Kemp, um, and, and Reagan picking up the whole theme of supply-side economics and the idea that the way you defeat inflation is you create more jobs, more products, more goods and services. So you, you're mopping up the extra money by providing extra things that people can get, which is very different than what the Federal Reserve is trying to do now, which is a classic demand side. Let's punish everybody until they're so poor that we don't have any inflation because nobody can spend anything. Um, and I think that uh, it's really important, and I, I agree with you. I think the uh, debt ceiling agreement that we're going to see is going to be a, a step. It's not, it's not the whole journey, but it is a clear step towards lower taxes, less spending, and less regulation. And uh, if they follow up on that, I think they're going to – the House Republicans will release a balanced budget proposal uh, that gets us to balance within 10 years and, and that we'll have a big economic growth component because, as you know, you're the one – I mean, you're really the, the, the greatest teacher about this now. Um, <clears throat> when, when you get to 3.5% growth and you get back to a normal, dynamic America, it's amazing how much revenue that generates – uh, not by raising taxes, but by raising prosperity. You know, this supply-side model, which is so important in the Reagan Revolution, and which you carried forward through the contract with America, um, to some extent it's been lost. There's a bunch of us that are trying to restore it. We saw we saw good brief glimpses of it during the Trump years. Uh, he was there on lower taxes and regulations, very, very important stuff. But, you know, uh, you had a balanced budget way back then. And I know you and I have talked about this in the last year or two. The principle of a balanced budget is so important. And you can have a pro-growth balanced budget. In fact, growth is essential. High growth and low inflation is essential to a balanced budget. Now, let me just ask you this. You talk, You spent a lot of time with Bill Clinton, all right? And in some vague way, you know, Clinton, I mean, he sort of vaguely understood this. But talk to us. Give us a little history about those conversations with Clinton. Did he understand what you were pushing him to do? Yeah, I mean, Clinton had been governor for a long time in Arkansas, which is a very conservative state. Uh, And Clinton understood the the, the essence of uh, having a lower tax system. Uh, he, he campaigned as a centrist, and he had spent uh, a number of years trying to b- help the Democratic Party go back to the center. Uh, but once he got elected, uh, sadly for him and wonderfully for us, uh, the, the congressional Democrats talked him into being vastly more liberal in his first two years in office. And he, he broke the coalition which had elected him and gave us the chance to, to win because they brought up things like, like a tax on energy. Well, America is a big country where people travel a lot and where people in the Northeast worry about the cost of fuel oil, heating oil, uh, and, and people around the country worry about uh, the cost of natural gas and the cost of gasoline. So 
they, they got the House Democrats to ram through without a single Republican vote, a tax increase that was wildly unpopular. Uh, the Senate Democrats wouldn't even take it up. So they felt that the House Democrats had been sort of hung out to dry. Then they went after guns in a way which infuriated rural America. Uh, and you go through a whole series of these things. And, and by 94, Clinton was defeated in a shocking scale of landslide. Nobody expected a Republican House. But we also picked up the Senate. We picked up governorships. We picked up state legislators. Uh, and Clinton, who was a very practical guy, he'd, he'd won in 78 as the youngest governor in the country and lost in 80 and spent two years worrying about having lost because he didn't have much money. And that many lost the governor's mansion, the car, the airplane, the state police. You know, <laughs> And so he really wanted to get back to be governor again. Plus, he was an ambitious guy and he wanted to someday be president. So there was a big fight in the White House in June of 95, and all of his liberal staff said to him, you know, you have to take Gingrich head on. You have to fight for our values. You have to stand firm for liberalism. And he said to them, you know, if I do what you want me to, I'm going to get beat in 96. But if I work with Gingrich, I might be able to get reelected. And I ain't going to do what you want me to. And we we had, when, when we were negotiating, there were a couple times, for example, when Leon Panetta, who at that time was his chief of staff, would, would literally jump up in anger and yell at him and say, you can't do that. We lost control of the House because we did that. And if you repeal it, it, it it'll make everything we sacrificed you know, useless. And Clinton would just stare at him. I mean, I, yeah. I'd never quite seen a president dressed down by his chief of staff before. And, <laughs> you know, and, and, then, and, then, and then he would say, well, maybe I can't do all of it. And then he'd do half of it. And so you, you could move him. I mean, we people forget... And, and this is where I'm really pleased with the way that, that Speaker McCarthy is operating, because he's going down to see the president. They are having conversations. Well, I met with Clinton uh, on 35 different days uh, in order to uh, get a balanced budget agreement. And, yeah. and, you know, you had to sit in a room and you had to talk it out. Uh, but he was a guy you could talk with. Uh, you know, I, I, can't, I couldn't imagine trying to do that with Barack Obama. Mm. <laughs> Newt, uh, let me just take a quick commercial break. I want to come back and continue exactly this conversation. And uh, I want to raise the point that Ronald Reagan beat Jimmy Carter on the economy and that Bill Clinton beat uh, Papa Bush on the economy. And the Republicans had their heyday on the economy. And you're right. Kevin McCarthy understands that. The question is, do our presidential candidates understand that? Folks, we're talking to Newt Gingrich, of course, former Speaker of the House, Fox News contributor, his new book, March to the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution, is coming out June 6th. It's available for pre-order. I'm Kudlow. We'll be back with Newt Gingrich in just a moment. Larry Kudlow. Larry Kudlow. If the continuing failure of Bidenomics, high inflation, tax hikes, and virtual recession, has you thinking about diversifying your portfolio with gold or silver, I suggest calling my friends at Swiss America, the trusted leader in precious metals for 40 years. Plus, silver is in high demand for military, solar, electric cars, and tech. And they want to help you get started by offering a beautiful U.S. silver walk-in Liberty half dollars at the amazingly low price of $13.50 each delivered, limit 250 per customer while supplies last. To reserve your silver coins, call... Or just text 800 or visit SwissAmerica.com slash Larry. 
That's silver walking liberty half dollars for just thirteen fifty each delivered to your door while supplies last. Help protect your assets today. Mention Larry when you call or text 800-254-5904 or visit SwissAmerica.com slash Larry. Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We're talking with the great Newt Gingrich, former Speaker of the House, best-selling author, Fox News contributor. His new book is called March to the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution. It's out June 6th, available for pre-order. Newt, uh, thanks for doing this on Memorial Day weekend. So point I wanted to hammer home on is Ronald Reagan beat Jimmy Carter on the economy in 1980. Bill Clinton beat Papa Bush on the economy uh, in uh, in, uh, 1992. Now, Clinton went left. You clobbered him in the midterm elections, and then Clinton went to the right. Uh, It just seems to me that this presidential election is going to be a pocketbook election on the economy. Uh, It's going to be whether the GOP can persuade voters that they are the stewards of economic prosperity. Can they produce a balanced budget? Can they get inflation down? Can they promote supply-side growth policies? You did it way back when. Uh, It's been done in small doses. The question is, can it be done in a larger dose now? Can the GOP be successful? Well, I think they can, and I think that the message of of opportunity, the message of a successful America, is a very powerful, very compelling message. Uh, and you know, I, I watched uh, Tim Senator Tim Scott, for example, announce the other day uh, for president, and he did a great job of of talking in a positive way, almost like Reagan. Uh, Reagan always believed that the future would be better, um, and and uh, it's just remarkable. You know, even in Reagan's last public statements as, as he was uh, dealing with Alzheimer's, he still had a positive comment about the future of America uh, because he just, that, that's who he was. It was deep in his soul. Um, I think that the American people are hungry for leadership. Uh, and this is part of why I think the House Republicans are off to an amazingly good start um, because they're, they're being positive. They're offering hope. Uh, and they're doing it on a, a, a number of things. I mean, p- people don't always realize, for example, if they if they get in this deal uh, on, on the debt ceiling, they get the right kind of permitting reform. They suddenly make infrastructure investment and oil and gas investment dramatically more desirable. Uh, and you get you begin to get a virtuous circle where, uh, and this is part of how we got to a, four years of a balanced budget. And frankly, when I left office. Alan Greenspan, then the chairman of the Federal Reserve, had given a speech saying that they thought that they might pay off the national debt by 2009. Mm. And they had a study group at the Federal Reserve trying to figure out how do you manage your money supply if you have no debt? Uh, <laughs> yes. Now, you know, uh, and then and <laughs> frankly, George W. Bush didn't have a clue what we were doing. Uh, and, and they promptly deviated and did not, they didn't understand the enormous long term value of the discipline of a balanced budget. Um, it forces you to think about what you're spending. It forces you to, to set priorities. It forces you to cut out waste and fraud. Uh, and, um, you know, we've been in a period of just, uh, as Reagan used to say, he would say we, we were spending like drunken sailors, but he didn't, want to, he didn't want to insult the sailors because we were actually spending a lot more than a drunken sailor would. Um, and that was part of his campaign against, against Carter. 
Uh, he, he had a great line, by the way. You may remember this because you, you were so deeply involved in it. But he had this thing where he said, you know, if your brother-in-law is laid off, it's called a recession. Uh, if you're laid off, it's called a depression. If Jimmy Carter's laid off, it's called a recovery. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I love. I lo- absolutely love that. So, <clears throat> um, the, the key to a balanced budget. I mean, I think the country yearns for a balanced budget. It's an odd issue, but I think they. It's. It sounds like it's a sort of, you know, boring issue. But I think people want that. They may not know well, exactly why, but I think that you know our fiscal house has got to be in order to get the country back in order. Right. And, you know, look, I think part of it's moral. Uh, part of it is is uh, the personal experience. Families know they can't run big deficits forever. Uh, small business owners know you can't run a big deficit forever. Uh, and I, you know, we we have a project, as you know, called America's New Majority Project, which you can, people can see if they go to America's New Majority Project dot com. And we do a lot of very extensive polling. And I would say that something like eighty percent of the American people. Uh, favor a balanced budget and believe it's a, it's a it's an important thing to do about 10 or 12 percent oppose it uh you know mostly government employees and, and government contractors who want the money uh but i think overwhelmingly it's a positive popular issue uh and and back i think the long more you talk about it the more popular it's going to get uh i i think that uh jody arrington as the budget committee chairman is is right at the beginning of riding a wave that will be amazing uh, and, and you know, you, you see breakthroughs every day in technology and new opportunities and new efficiencies. Uh, you apply those to the government. You can, you can really have dramatically better government with a lot lower budget. Uh, and, and, uh, and, frankly, the American people instinctively believe that the federal government has huge levels of waste, and they're right. I mean, you, you look at the thefts, for example, California had twenty billion, not million, twenty billion dollars stolen mm. in unemployment compensation. I mean, mm. it's it's staggering to think you have bureaucracies that are that incompetent. And I don't want to lose your theme. We're running out of time here, but big government socialism loses in the polling overwhelmingly to free market capitalism. Absolutely, it's it's a it's a huge opportunity for all of us who are conservatives. To, to the country seeing Biden fail, we need to make it a, a program failure, not a personal failure, and get them to understand right. that our way works. Newt Gingrich, The March to Majority, comes out June 6th, folks. you got to go out and buy that book. Thank you, Newt. Happy Memorial Day. Folks, I'm Kudlow. We're going to take a break. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk a little bit about, um, about presidential politics. How's that? Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show, and we bring in my longtime pal, Roger Stone, veteran political consultant and strategist, worked for Nixon, Reagan, Trump. Anyway, Roger Stone, how are you? Great to be back with you, Larry. Yeah, thanks for doing this on Memorial Day. We appreciate it. Raj, I want to talk some presidential politics. Nobody knows this stuff better than you do. Uh, We had two announcements last week. One of them was Tim Scott, Senator Scott of South Carolina. And, of course, the big one was uh, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. Actually, let me, what do you think of the Tim Scott story, Roger Stone? What do you think? Let's just start with that for a moment and then go to DeSantis. Well, potentially interesting, Larry. He had a more conventional and traditional announcement, 
uh, you know, one of the ways you run for vice president is, of course, running for president and doing a little better than people expect. Uh, I could see a lot of scenarios under which Tim Scott might be a viable vice presidential candidate, and therefore someday a more viable presidential candidate. But, uh, you know, obviously, any time an African-American emerges as a as a significant and viable Republican presidential candidate, it's a it's a viable news story. I think Tim Scott's got a lot of upside potential. Yeah, I agree with you 100 percent. I thought he did very well. By the way, I like traditional announcements. I think I think it's a good thing. Speaking of which, um, Governor DeSantis's Twitter feed announcement was neither traditional nor successful as the feed broke down. I think what what saved it partially was he had a good interview with Trey Gowdy of Fox News uh, later on, so people could get a better sense of what he stood for and and who he was. But what was your take on the DeSantis announcement, first of all? Let's start there. First of all, we live in a, a visual you know, universe, a, a visual uh, uh, communications system. Uh, and I thought it was very interesting. It was very good for Twitter, by the way, and good for Elon Musk. And that's a good thing because I think Twitter is beginning to emerge as a real alternative to the legacy media. Clearly, when Tucker Carlson heads there to do a Twitter-based show, which I think is imminent, uh, it's going to shift a lot of the ground over there, and Twitter is going to continue to be an important political uh, you know, outlet. Uh, on the other hand, the problem with this is you couldn't see DeSantis. You couldn't see whether he was reading uh, his his opening remarks. Uh, I have a feeling the questions were carefully scripted, as were the answers. By the way, I I applied to ask a question. It's funny, Larry. I wasn't uh, I wasn't accepted. Uh, <laughs> I, I, but I think it speaks to the larger question of whether DeSantis can perform in an unscripted atmosphere, in an atmosphere in which he doesn't control the microphone. Uh, he doesn't seem to be very good on his feet. Uh, and then secondarily, you cannot run for president without submitting yourself ultimately to a full press conference. There's a lot of questions about his conduct in Florida, a lot of questions about changes in the state law that make his travels and the expenses for his travels and his security uh, a secret. They heretofore were under our state sunshine law. He took a multi-million dollar book advance from from Harper Collins, which is the News Corporation. Uh, they're not going to sell ten million dollars worth of books. Uh, I think you got to be able to take these questions in an open format. Uh, and he's so far he has gone to all controlled situations. I agree with you. His interview with Trey Gowdy was pretty good. His interview with Mark Levin was pretty good. But again friendly questioners in both cases. You know, Roger, um, as a, we were just talking with Newt Gingrich in the earlier segment, and this is going to be, in large measure, a pocketbook election, okay? In some sense, the way Reagan beat uh, uh, Carter was on the economy. The way Clinton beat Papa Bush was on the economy. It's the economy, stupid. I think this one's going to be quite similar. Um, I know DeSantis is a smart guy, I know Florida. I know he inherited a zero income tax in Florida uh, from past Republican administrations, 
But I don't see an economic growth and prosperity agenda. It's my single biggest critique of Governor DeSantis. He's Woke is fine up to a point, but I think he's gone too far. I, I, I don't think he can beat Trump uh, or Biden unless he has a far, far better economic growth agenda. Uh, I think there's three legs to the stool, Larry. One is uh, an economic growth agenda. He has not put one forward. Secondarily is a more cogent foreign policy, particularly one centered around the dangers of China and the communist Chinese went unmentioned in his uh, uh, in his announcement pretty much anywhere. Uh, and then lastly uh, is the are the cultural issues. But we cannot certainly win on the cultural issues alone. And that seems to be what drives him. Uh, so I, I agree with your analysis. I think there are a lot of missing pieces. Uh, add on top of all that immigration problem mm-hmm. at our southern border. Uh, so I, I don't think you have a full uh, and broad candidacy at this point. He's um, down 30, 40 points to Trump right now in the primaries. Can he make that back? What does he have to do to make that back? Well, look, everything is going to be, as it has always been, uh, contingent on what happens in these early primary and caucus states. Reagan was leading George H.W. Bush by 18 when Bush pulled an upset in the Iowa caucuses simply by physically uh, outworking Reagan. Reagan's, uh, I was there, of course, working for Reagan. Reagan's folks, uh, we made a miscalculation thinking that Reagan could just parachute into the state, give a couple speeches and leave and that we would win. Trump cannot, in my opinion, and I'm strongly supporting President Trump, just to be clear, but I don't think he can make the same error and get outworked in any of these early contests. Uh, he is He's a strong front runner. There's huge intensity and loyalty among his voters. They're unlikely to leave him. He has enough votes in both states, in all three early states, to win a multi-candidate contest now, but he's going to have to identify and turn out those votes he cannot allow DeSantis to outwork him. Uh, he can't outthink him, but he can outwork him, and the president cannot allow that. I don't think he. I don't think he will. By the way, shouldn't Trump debate? I think it will be absolutely crucial to debate at the end of the day. On the other hand, Trump should debate on his own terms. He shouldn't debate when Fox demands it. He should not do it when the Republican National Committee demands it. You can't really have a debate unless the front runner is involved. So Trump is in a very strong position to dictate the conditions uh, and the dates uh, of the debates. But ultimately, I think it will be required. You think he should go? The first debate is in August out in Milwaukee. You think you should do it? Not necessarily. I think uh, he should uh, he should look at his options again. The race can't begin without the front runner. A debate can't be real without the front runner. A debate between Ron DeSantis and all the other candidates, my guess is the other candidates really all understand they need to get up and over DeSantis before they can get to Trump. Attacking Trump with his you know, deep intensity of support is really dangerous. So a debate without Trump would end up being a, you know, a, a pile-on for Governor DeSantis, and there's plenty to talk about there. Mm. That's an interesting point. It would be a pylon. It would be like uh, playing the semifinals before you get into the finals of the of the tennis tournament. Um, Roger, you're for Trump. How's how is walk through? How is Trump in the CNN debate? I'm going to call. I know it's a town hall, but it was really a debate with that woman. 
Um, how's his messaging so far, Roger Stone? I can't think of any other public figure, and that includes Ron DeSantis, who could go into that kind of lion's den and emerge, I think, as the dominant winner. I mean, he is he is at his best when he's under pressure. And you saw a very combative, aggressive, assertive Trump. Uh, no, he's not going to stop saying that he thinks the election uh, was stolen from him because he believes it was. There's a lot of evidence to that effect. He is not going to uh, he is not going to back off any of his current positions. So I think he went in there and dominated uh, in a very, very hostile situation where the moderator was also essentially his opponent. So I, I can't imagine that anyone else can do that kind of un- unscripted. Uh, job. I thought it was a triumph in all yeah, honesty. I did too. I think he hit a home run. I also, Roger, from my lights on the economy, I thought Trump messaged very well. You know, in a sense, the turning point in that debate for the nationwide audience was when he said, drill, baby, drill. And then he walked right through his achievements on taxes and regulations and uh, economic growth. I mean, to me, that's the stuff of a victory. Well, politics is always about the future. It's never about the past. The good thing about Trump is that he can lay out a plan, which is really basically back to the future, meaning he's a proven uh, uh, performer, particularly on the economy. You're talking about the greatest rate of job creation in our history, the greatest rate of wage growth, the lowest levels of unemployment among black Americans, white Americans, Hispanic Americans, young, old, urban, rural I mean, it's a, it's a stunning economic record. You know, Larry, because you were there helping implement his programs. Uh, that will be the, the central economy, uh, the central issue. What's going to – I think they're fudging these unemployment numbers. I think they're, they, the Fed, you know, manipulates them because uh, – and the Bureau of, of Labor Statistics uh, manipulates them. I don't think nearly – the reality is not nearly as rosy as the Biden administration tells us. You'd be in a better position to tell me what will happen in terms of inflation. But I think there's very little chance the economy will be stronger today uh, in 2024 by November than it will be than it is today. Uh, and Trump's got a proven track record, which I uh, has huge credibility, both in the foreign policy realm uh, and uh, in terms of his being the one guy with the credibility to end the war in Ukraine. He's the guy who cut off the Russian pipeline. He's the guy who gave the Ukrainians offensive missiles. He's got the credibility to negotiate a settlement and do it before the Biden administration stumbles us into World War III. Yeah, you know, that's a that's a almost a sleeper point, Roger. We, we've got to go. But, um, you know, it's Joe Biden's war and spending a fortune on the war. And the war looks like a stalemate. And, it, and Trump says, stop the killing. Stop the killing. I, I think that was a huge plus in that CNN town hall. I really do. I think uh, Americans are getting, we love freedom and democracy, but you have to be somewhat realistic about these things, too. And uh, I think Trump has a unique ability to run as the peace candidate, uh, as yeah. the one candidate who could bring this, law, this war to a conclusion and stop the killing. Uh, uh, look, the Russians would never have moved on Ukraine. The, the Chinese would never move on Taiwan because of the unpredictability of Donald Trump. Uh, and he's the one guy with the with the negotiating chops, I think, proven uh, to end this war. That's that is going to be a 
Huge sleeper issue. Yeah, 100%. Roger Stone, thank you ever so much. Great to talk to you. Great to hear your voice. We'll talk soon. Folks, I'm Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break, and then Betsy McCoy is going to come in, talk about her great New York Post column. Why can't we bust shoplifters, for heaven's sakes? I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show.